what's the delivery landscape that you observe in the companies that you go into? There are large flavors of agile everywhere, as you can imagine. If the company is newer to software development in general, so think about traditional German companies having a digital business unit that is somehow separated or considers IT a cost center and so on, they will go super hard on the whole scrum stuff. But you know, like buy the book, the way someone preaches the Bible, add all the scrum masters, add all the agile coaches, kind of confuse the role of a PM with a PO that is a ticket shredder. I really loved this joke by Ryan Singer. So, th so that is like one flavor of company, less of an ideal customer profile, but fine for our junior people building up product owner skills. Uh, then the next one would be an intersection of both. This trying to discover that the PM role is business or needs to have a strong commercial facing area, but somehow also creates the product owner role who remains the ticket shredder and the project manager. Um, I think that's a pretty dangerous and poor setup and we advise clients against it. And, and then the, the other ones are the more, let's say Marty Kagan PM type of companies or at least aspire to do so. And even just aspiring to do so makes things easier. Welcome to Shapers and Builders, the show about better ways to deliver great software products. Today I'm speaking with Mirela Moose, founder and CPO at Product People. Her team of 41 in-house product managers helps companies cover parental leaves, scale teams up quickly during hypergrowth, and cover any other use case that calls for interim product managers. This bonus episode breaks with the main theme of season one of the Shapers and Builders podcast, which is primarily about case studies of teams using ShapeUp. Instead, today we get to enjoy the fact that Mirela and her team have worked within every product development context you can imagine and learn from the incredible breadth of experience that Mirela has built up over the past five years with her team. Besides ShapeUp, which Mirela experienced during an engagement at Tier Mobility, we talk about the general landscape of software delivery, the intricacies of interim product management, how to evaluate seniority in any role, and what you can learn about product management from reading science fiction books. I had the best of times talking to Mirela, and I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation. Mirela, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. So happy to be here. I, uh, you're actually the first famous person that I have on, um, at least I would say within the Berlin startup scene for sure. Uh, do you consider yourself famous? For interim product management, I think Product People is one of the most known companies in Europe because it's also something relatively new that we've started and focused solely on it as a company. For sure. And uh, I think that's a, a great start to the conversation. I I'd love to hear a bit more on the background of product people. What is it, what you do, why, why is it that you're doing this? And, um, and how many people are you now? So I'll start with, with the people, about 41 in-house employees. So they're, they're not contractors. We're not a marketplace. We hire people full time that serve our clients in interim product management roles. This can also be product operations, product leadership roles, or if the company is a bit more in the scrum style, product owner 
roles. We serve this on a fractional basis, sometimes also with a part-time client involvement. So someone could be two days per week at a client, two days per week at another client. They're all full-time on our payroll and committed to, to product people. We pride ourselves for onboarding fast, aligning teams and delivering outcomes. So this is how we make money it, uh, with examples like parental covers, um, helping structure uh, product teams or product operation teams or running discovery streams separately if the PMs are busy. What we also do to give back in the world and has also helped us tremendously in recruiting very smart individuals into our companies is the product management community. And that is uh, live stream events, which we publish for free weekly, sometimes in-person events, uh, speaking at conferences, running a podcast and so on and so forth. Cool. And and why did you start Product People? What What was the spark for you? I was uh, spending some time figuring out what to do next as uh, I've always wanted to start a company. I have lots of examples in my family. And one, once doing that, I saw a gap on the market uh, between maybe to step, uh, take a step back. When companies get large enough or big enough, they will always have some part of it that is external. So in a general setup, we would see management consulting firms. We would see also body leasing agencies, usually dev shops, design shops, uh, or everything shops that, you know, you come up with a title, they'll rename someone internally and give you that person. Yeah. So, so this type of setup I've observed over and over again on the market, it also being a customer of this type of services. And I did notice a gap between management consulting that does strategy and then the implementation body leasing shops where if they have the product manager, product owner role, it's more focused on ensuring the billable days for the developers because that is 80% of the revenue. So I'm not saying that, you know, people would come up and, and have this intention, but the way it's set up is that no one challenges what the dev team does and if things drag on or get a bit overly bloated, it's for the better um, mm -hmm. in the bottom line of this company. And we felt that this is already a conflict of interest, that it's worth having a company that is not incentivized to sell other services and do product management right. And that also turned out to be a very good angle for recruiting because most PMs would be afraid of going to an agency as they're afraid of becoming a ticket shredder. You know, there's like all, all you do is like, okay, go, go write tickets, go and handhold the developers because they're the ones bringing most of the revenue to one of these companies, you know, the, the typical staffing would be six, seven other functions and then one PM um, when the body yeah. leasing shops try to sell the whole team. Yeah, got it. I mean, uh, 41 in-house employees, that sounds like a lot. I guess uh, a lot of tech companies um, will look uh, at you in, in a way that you're stealing all the, the PM talent out there, right? Um, I, I would say that the people we focus on are sometimes not a fit for the um, in-house employees and vice versa. Mm, think about it in the management consulting firms, right? Why why did people in the past, why did young ambitious people in the past go to consulting firms? To, to get a wide experience across industries and figuring out what they want to do. And most importantly, also to amp their career because you could go work at one company and just kind of tie your reputation and your learnings and your brand to that. Or you would go to a McKinsey BCG Bain and see across a variety of those 
if you like the context switching and the workload and sometimes the, the pressure that comes with consulting, then maybe that's a good path for you. If you don't like that, you would still be better off than someone who didn't start there because now you're going to have um, a big brand on your CV and experience from other bigger brands and you can position yourself to enter middle management or like some interesting role uh, what in what consulting firms call the industry. So like anyone else that's not consulting. Yeah, I think uh, that's super interesting. And I want to get a bit deeper into the differences that you see with uh, what you're calling fractional PM or interim uh, PM mm -hmm. positions versus in-house. And I'm, I'm going on paternity leave, actually, Kudos. in a few months. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, looking forward to it. And uh, we have hired a, a freelance product manager now to come in and cover me. And they'll be fully, fully focused, basically, on delivering... Um, an initiative that kind of I've worked out with the with the team now. Um, so they'll be in a pure execution role during that time. Mm -hmm. I'm gone for, for about two months. Um, so just my imagination from the outside in is that uh, for a stint of only a few months, it's not nearly enough time to really go deep into the context of the company, the context of the customer, uh, understanding the product, the architecture behind it and so on, and to go through the full discovery motions. Um, is that something that you observe in the work that you all do as well, where you're more focused on the execution side of things? Or um, do you actually, is my perception wrong on, on that? So, so all very good questions. Um, I would throw a question back at you to get a bit more context on the company. So why did you, uh, did you go for a freelancer? I assume this is an independent contractor that your company will be paying for this short time. Yeah, Why not exactly. go to a company for this type of service? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is a, a special case where this person has worked with the company before. Um, so this person already has the context. And in a way, we're bringing them back for a short period of time. Um, yeah, so, so that, that's already um, a very good answer. Um, and I understand now why the tenure is so short, because this can become a um, labor law liability in, in Germany, especially, for example, when we were onboarding with Zalando, we had a checkbox there. If any of our people are ex-Zalando employees uh, as contractors, because this could be seen as a way to offload employees into a new company that doesn't look like the main one, right? So, so, so the larger mm -hmm. the company gets, the more restrictions are around that, which creates a pretty good moat for us because our people are full-time on our payroll. We're not passing a German freelancer through. And at, at the same time, we have multiple revenue streams from a lot of large known brands, including the World Health Organization, that we can't seem like a sub-department of some corporates that's trying yeah. to minimize their labor compliance risks. So, so that's one of the things. I understand in this context that it was more of a regretted attrition that you're potentially trying to bring back. Maybe they even stay as an employee because that <laughs> this is where I would differentiate ourselves also from the freelancers on the market. So we're very friendly towards all the other vendors because in our setup, we will be working with at least two, three other vendors. Um, mm -hmm. If the company is, is big enough, sometimes the company has body leasing uh, agencies, sometimes they have strategy firms, sometimes they also just have independent contractors. And we've seen two paths for independent contractors. It's sometimes to pay the bills and fill the resume while you're looking for your next full-time role, which in this 
tough job market, it's advisable. I've also seen it in leadership positions, which come across um, with a smaller frequency than, let's say, individual contributor roles, like a senior PM or a PM. If you're looking for a VP, director of product, head of CPO, you can't go just take the next thing, right? You're kind of, and I've seen people use this a bit as a dating period with the new company and figuring out if what they were promised actually matches the title and work they've been seeing. Because I guess there are a lot of these stories where someone gets in, gets promised a big team, big scope, and then they're ending up being like the assistant uh, of the sales team. And it's like, no, but I thought I'm coming here as a CPO to drive the business and and be on eye level with all the other departments. It's like, no, no, just just go and uh, shepherd delivery. And then with this one, I can come back to your question of are our missions delivery focused or do we actually get more interesting work? (laughs) It depends on the client and the level of the seniority they engage. So at Product People, we have nine levels of seniority what we would call the product owner focus on delivery part would be more of an L3, that's an associate product management consultant. Maybe sometimes also L4, which is a product management consultant. From there on, we expect people to be able to run discovery very well, drive strategy, even if initially they're given this type of tasks, because sometimes the client just doesn't have the trust that someone will get up to speed fast and I, yeah. or they just have their house burning and all you can do is get a bottle you know bucket of water and throw it in there um yeah. so our you know first rule in b2b is don't get fired initially <laughs> we try to go to the motions and what the client says we should be focused on because they have the best knowledge and they know that once we get on board which we estimate to be two weeks if it's super speedy sometimes in larger corporates it could be four weeks then we can come with proposals or feedback or questions that we figure out the best audience for to give because we also don't want to be disruptive and unless the company comes in and say like, okay this is a transformation we're reworking product uh, or we're introducing product ops or we're doing something new sometimes you just want to cover a maternity leave for two months uh, yeah. or work on pre-agreed topics and that's totally fine and we respect that and we understand our role if there's more time we also try to give advice and help people on the improvement points that we notice while figuring out the right audience and the right place to make these suggestions so it it also reading the room is super important in in our cases Uh, and and that's also something we did notice when when hiring if if there are people that don't have high cognitive flexibility and understanding that not everything is like the last company they worked on or not everything is as it works at product people, then those people are more successful. So there's a degree of unlearning when you join product people, which sounds counterintuitive at first. As examples, we've also had, let's say, pure discovery initiatives or pure zero to one. For example, a large e-commerce company in Germany wanted to have a zero to one type of subscription product because they were transaction based so so regular e-commerce you sell a thing then you sell another thing and these have um less of a purchase frequency than they would have desired just due to the nature of of this uh, right you don't buy a mattress or pillows uh, every week you kind of yeah it's a one to three year type of expenditure and our people were more focused on discovery for a subscription product that is in the space of sleep and that's, uh, we first smoke tested a lot of hypotheses, 
we ended up um, with uh, support from one engineering manager and that team building a no-code MVP, which we ran for a while, understood what's being utilized, accepted, liked, understood. And then that ended up being spinned off as a separate venture fully with a dedicated uh, development uh, mobile app development team, which mm -hmm. came from another team where we decommissioned the product. And, and I think that's the best example of the value product people brings, because if we would have come in with that development team, we wouldn't want our colleagues fired, right? Because we also yeah. <laughs> didn't know at some point what will happen with the people there. Um, although what, one of our PMs went shopping around and said, hey, we're, we're going to have this internal dev team that becomes available. Do you other PMs have topics or should we allocate them on a completely new stream and so on? And it ended up that they were reallocated on a completely new stream and we had a nice handover between the PM that was decommissioning a product with low adoption and utilization rate that the company decided it's more cost efficient to white label and going into this new stream that we discovered has more traction and interest from consumers. Cool. I love to understand a bit from your experience, because you touched on this, uh, you know, onboarding being very speedy, two mm -hmm. to four weeks. Um, and then if there's more time, you kind of, you would self-expand the scope of the person that goes in, maybe with a delivery fo focus first, but then uh, expand out. What are some of the typical milestones or timeframes that you observe? Like, what's the time frame where you can be just heads down on delivery? How long does a stint need to be to get really into the context of the company, the customer, the products, and so on. That, that also depends on the level of seniority that, that we staff. Um, it's, it's definitely a large factor and also the setup of the client, because there are some clients where we get incredibly restricted access to, to mm -hmm. things, just how the way they treat externals, where there are others we're like, here is our micro strategy or looker dashboard and you are invited to most of the leadership meetings. Uh, that, that's one component. The other component is how well is delivery set up? The, um, I know John Cutler had one of these LinkedIn posts that really made me say, yes, you know, he's, he's <laughs> seen it. There are some companies where just delivering something, it's a tremendous effort due to how they're set up, their tech depth, the, the poly, everything is so fucking unbearably hard that even yeah. like having the smallest a b test live is like oh my god it's it, elsewhere this would have taken two days uh to set up on optimizely here it, it took like three months of this so it's it's also the context that sometimes shapes up what we want to do we of course try to be strategic pick up low-hanging fruits that we can do that makes sense to the strategy and direction our client gave us but, but that's indeed a big factor. And we would also tell them based on our observation, these are some things that work better here and better there, because it depends the size of the company, B2C, B2B orientation, everything else they're going from like a post M&A setup, it's absolutely insane. So it's hyper growth. And there you expect a lot of processes and things to fall through and break. And especially it being very hard from the, for the existing employees who signed up for a different reality than they're getting thrown in right now. Whereas for us, it's yeah. like business as usual. <laughs> and for the duration, we recommend for the, um, for the interim roles to start at three months. So I see you're on the mark with the two and a half months because we estimate two weeks to onboard, two weeks to offboard. So then you just have two months of actual work that, that you can lead internally. 
um, on average, our engagements are five to six months. Um, and, and there are some where we would start at three months in one department, like, for example, how you bring in this freelancer, then you come back from parental, but the director or a VP noticed and liked our person and it's like, oh, wait, there's another employee exiting since you already have the laptop and the accounts and yeah. have figured out how we do planning and prioritizing. How about you now go for from this uh, consumer facing side of the product organization into the payments integration or B2B tooling part. Um, and then three to six months in there's, oh, there's another parental or there's another exit or no, now we are reorganizing or there's PM who stopped liking doing X and wants to do uh, Y or Z. And we would like to move them, but we don't have someone to take over their existing scope. How about you do that? Uh, so, so we've seen this uh, quite a lot. I think the hardest part for us is to get into a new organization. Um, and this is also why we have our ideal customer profile leaning more towards series B plus to publicly listed digital first mm. companies, because if they're not digital first, they're just going to take someone with a pulse from a body leasing agency that does some basic project management. But if they start having expectations that PMs drive the business and look at commercial KPIs and have a meaningful impact, plus if if the client is good at systemic thinking and understanding incentives and that you want checks and balances even within your contractors um, then that that's an ideal setup for us and we have seen the market validate this that um some clients are even doing it for when they outsource development that they take people and mix them up from two development uh, team vendors separately so that they understand the speed and the balance and that the other developers can provide more accurate feedback on how the developer from outsourcing company one is performing versus outsourcing company two or versus outsourcing company three. And then that is the PM and, and like some internal oversight. Yes, because sometimes there are cases where you just need to bring a lot of people in. And how do you do that while not giving away your whole business or not... Um, being at the mercy of whatever one vendor tells you to be true, well, they're also incentivized to stay there as long as possible. So we're also incentivized with that. I understand yeah. our biases, but at most we could do is sell more PMs. And mm -hmm. at most we could do is like sell 41 PMs, which we wouldn't <laughs> do because then we would have a, a risk on being over allocated at one client, um, we, which wouldn't be the smartest thing to do as you always want your eggs in multiple baskets. Yeah, that is super interesting. It's a it's an industry I haven't really had any touch points with in the past. Super cool to learn. No worries. I've had that for a while, and I'm still discovering companies I never heard of that are over a thousand people. Big. <laughs> so so it's it's a super big industry to begin with, um, and and most of a red ocean. So we've also looked at how do we differentiate within mm -hmm. this setup, considering it's very easy to clone, set something up new and so on. Like how do you become so ingrained and so so well known for the quality and the type of work you provide as a brand that it's a no brainer to go with product people yeah. in, instead of considering other options. Yeah. I, you know, um, we spoke about this before that right now I'm talking to a lot of people on how they have adopted ShapeUp, this mm -hmm. delivery framework. And and generally, I'm trying to explore kind of how different teams run the delivery side of things. 
And I love that you basically get an overview into many, many companies and how they're building products. So, you know, what's the delivery landscape that you observe in, in the companies that you go into? There are large flavors of agile everywhere, as you can imagine. If, if the company is newer to, to software development in general, so think about traditional German companies having a digital business unit that is somehow separated or considers IT a cost center and so on, they will go super hard on the whole scrum stuff. But, you know, like by the book, the way someone preaches the Bible, add all <laughs> the scrum masters, add all the agile coaches, kind of confuse the role of a PM with a PO that <laughs> is a ticket shredder. I really loved this joke by Ryan Singer uh, who wrote Shape Up. Mm -hmm which I'm, I'm sure you read uh, a few times already. Uh, so, th so that is like one flavor of company, less of an ideal customer profile, but fine for our junior people building up uh, product owner skills. Uh, then the next one would be an intersection of both. Just trying to discover that the PM role is business or needs to have a strong commercial facing area, but somehow also creates the product owner role who remains the ticket shredder and the project manager. Um, I think that's a pretty dangerous and poor setup and we advise clients against it. Many times we get objections that, hey, we need to scale. We're present in a double digit or triple digit number of markets. How do we split the PM role without letting things fall through and overwhelming them? And then one of the answers is product ops, technical program management, and so on and so forth. And, and then the, the other ones are the more, let's say, Marty Kagan PM type of companies, or at least aspire to do so. And even just aspiring to do so makes things easier. So we've seen nice setups at company like Zalando, where engineering managers need to, uh, people wanting to promote as an engineering manager or as a tech team lead, need to show understanding of commercial KPIs and what they've done to do, to show that traction. And of course, for, for the PMs, it's absolutely part of the requirements. And that has get, gotten way more buy-in and help from the engineering side than I've ever seen elsewhere. Plus trying to understand the user, the personas, the use cases, jobs to be done and getting a sense of the roadmap and the direction of business units. It doesn't work everywhere. So you also notice that there are some companies where even if you try to do that, there are some engineers that just mentally check out and will complain of the first uncertain thing and so on. So it's, it doesn't solve everything. It solves it also if you have the right person and the right motivation. And then you can also use your uh, talent management processes internally to figure out if the people who don't do that are a long-term fit or where, where do you position them. I've seen ShapeUp uh, work at Tier and also doing that, and, and, and it was um, a very refreshing uh, setup. It worked well as um, when we were experiencing this, the company was in hypergrowth, and the, they worked with um, two-month cycles, so the six delivery, um, two weeks of cooldown, and, and that um, helped not have enormous alignment meetings about the roadmap because everyone knew the roadmap is not going to be the same at the end of these two months. It was even hard to hold that together for, in some cases for two months. So it was a, 
a very nice setup compared to some other traditional companies we've been at who have sometimes four months of OKR cycles. So it means that you only get three of these a year and everyone is going to jam everything in. We've also seen uh, faster companies like Omeo where the OKR cycles were two months. And to make things simpler, you need to agree with your core stakeholders on only one OKRs with a maximum of three KRs, not five, not, not more. Mm-hmm. And, and that also made the conversations um, easier to align because, hey, we need to agree on one one thing and one thing only. And this needs to be also pretty achievable in this short time frame that we have. What worked well with ShapeUp was less of a need for scheduling. I, I really like the methods where planning is pretty lightweight especially the ratio of planning compared to the time you're going to do discovery delivery. And that, that helped here, especially aligning with a lot of async tools before having the, the planning meetings and having um, widespread visibility across the companies on which are the directions that everyone from the product team is pulling towards. What we did notice works a bit less well in, in ShapeUp is when you have more junior PMs or junior engineering or junior designer. So you need a level of seniority across the board to allow them to enjoy this lack of structure. Because if you send a very senior PM in one of these death by scrum meetings uh, setups, they're not they're just going to waste so much time in, in all of these ceremonies with very little impact and they're going to get frustrated. But for a junior PM, this is super exciting, right? There's mm-hmm. like a lot of handholding that the process does for yourself. Same for uh, for developers. Whereas in ShapeUp, engineering needs to be at the table very early in the shaping of what we're going to do. And I feel this also works well with Teresa Torres' um, continuous discovery advice as well opportunity solution trees, because there as well, the sooner you bake engineering, the sooner you understand if this is going to be a super simple thing or no, we, we need to rewrite everything or get a white label solution type of discussion. And the, the more companies start having also, uh, microservices haven't made that easier to, to summarize. Uh, also working with different ML teams, applied science teams, or generative AI for parties makes it again harder because as a PM, it can, you know, it can be a prompt or it can be a complex integration and we will need to, to train the model or we will need to now adapt uh, the, the parameters that we're, we're doing or we would need to increase our costs because storage or computational power and let's see if, if that where, where in the budget we take that from. So there are some things that worked super well, and I personally enjoyed it because the less structure I needed to abide with, the easier it was for me to figure out um, what, what are we actually doing here and, and how are we going to make it happen. It was also a quite intense time from a meeting perspective as there was no product ops at the time at Tier, and my team would have benefited enormously for this, which is also why we proposed it and it then became a reality. Um, as it was the compliance team and in mobility, especially any, whenever you put a scooter somewhere, it needs to be approved by a tender and to win these tenders, you need to provide a, a few things the cities want. 
so it's it's a more of a b to g type of play mm -hmm. uh, business to governmental where after you've done all your homework and are not getting fired by the city then you can go around acquiring users so that also mm -hmm. made uh, my topics very easy to highlight whenever i was crashing into the um, backlog of another team uh, but it, it created also a lot of pressure from market expansion because to enable new markets, they will come with this heavy 50-pager document and they're like, well, they want um, live view of all the where all the scooters are in the city. Okay, well, where do we have this live view? Well, we have it in the internal tooling, but it doesn't have the access permission needed for yeah. externals to seek that and they shouldn't see more than their city and they shouldn't see more, uh, you know, can we go around for it not being a live view. Maybe we just give them a dashboard export from Looker uh, or MicroStrategy or, you know, like one of these tools. Is the live part really necessary? So you, you kind of needed to have a lot of these conversations or there was another city that wanted the mandatory user onboarding. And um, of course, someone from compliance came with this great idea of having a nine minute video in the mobile app. And we went back and said, well, it says mandatory. Can it be one screen? Uh, it's like, no, that's too little. Okay, can it be two screens? Can we put a link to this nine-minute video that people can appraise in their own time where they're not like freezing in the cold and trying to book something? Yeah. This, this type of conversation so that not having a lot of ceremonies with the dev team helped, uh, aside from a daily stand-up that we sometimes we do async, helped not have to... Um, be super packed in my calendar and and yeah. go focus on which markets do we want to harden in and basically do all the things by the book and be fine with regulators which markets are we expanding and to expand there we need to uh, be rated very well on the tender which means these points become super important uh, yeah. so, so that was the, the personal example there so but again if if you need this type of development team that needs to be handled through everything and have every ticket super scoped uh, then this may not work out with the shape up method. For example, what uh, at Zalando we didn't use shape up. It was more of a super lightweight companyish, uh, but but with the cadence where we would still plan this. So you couldn't come in mm -hmm. in the. I, I I'm afraid of saying it was scrum because it wasn't really. It, it was extremely lightweight from a ceremony. So it, and... it was like kanban with check ins, right? I think yeah, that's what it, I sometimes it was, call it. <laughs> um, I don't know, a Kanban plus. But yeah. what we had there as a, a very cool handover, which we've seen at very few companies, is that there was a product refinement session and it was a develop engineering refinement session. So this whole refinement became mm -hmm. two meetings. Um, I was expressly uninvited from the engineering refinement meeting and things that didn't go past the product refinement. Uh, it was basically product pitching something to engineering and making sure that engineering understands what they will need to do to take this over in the next meeting and break it down. Sometimes there will be some comments or, or questions that would come from the engineering meeting, um, but not many. And when they came, they also came with a suggestion because it, it was a relatively complex systems with a lot of dependencies on other teams. And we try to do our best to minimize these dependencies or to move fast and validate what we wanted to validate without waiting for two months for an, another team to give us something, right? It's, it, you're at a large enough company to have seen that already. 
So, so that becomes kind of the the fight. And and the team figured that out, and they were very good at sometimes even unblocking dependencies from themselves or figuring out how we can do things um, w without needing to now go to pitch to other teams why our topic is important. So that yeah. they take us in. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the conversation. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and to let you know about the Shapers and Builders job board. On shapers.builders, yes, that's the domain, you'll find jobs in software development, design, product management, and other roles at companies that work with ShapeUp. Many of these roles are remote, and teams who use ShapeUp generally run at a more sustainable, healthy, and meaningful pace than the hamster wheel of two-week sprints. So if you're looking for a job in tech or trying to find great people, head over to the Shapers and Builders job board at shapers.builders. Now let's turn back to the conversation. You've mentioned a lot of uh, points that resonate with my personal experience also around ShapeUp, where you've, you've mentioned kind of not getting bogged down in ceremonies gave you the space in your calendar to engage with these uh, kind of uh, complex issues and, and stakeholders and so on. Um, and I see that for a lot of teams. However, I think the criticism that ShapeUp at, at a high level receives oftentimes is that it's kind of a mini waterfall and the sequence is quite long of six weeks that you commit to one thing. How have you, and you mentioned even this working with, I mean, continuous discovery. Um, how do you see the ability to focus versus the ability to inject and be opportunistic? Um, that, that kind of tension within shape up. We don't need to just follow it by the book, right? It's also as as with everything, use your own brain and see what it works for each uh, company. We of course had these interruptions, and to, to some degree, it depends also how you have incident management set up, right? That's a completely different topic. Who triages this? When does it show up? Um, is is every team solving their own incidents? Is there a rotation based in a pool of people? Because this, this is where the noise comes in. And the other noise yeah. could be internal. There's um, customer success, customer support escalation, uh, or there's a rollout that hasn't gone as we expected, or, or there, there are various things. So at first, I would need a bit more context on how this company is set up and what is creating potential noise and interruptions. And then what's the solution for this? One good example from, from Omeo that is a part of the core functionality of the product is based on a lot of integrations, but you can have that as well in companies that operate in a lot of markets and then they have lots of payment processors or, or even if they have an ADN or Stripe, there are still things that can come out on, on the end of all of these integrations in every market. So that would be a team where the daily disturbance needs to be taken into account because you're prohibiting people from paying. At Omeo's case, it was the integration to get the inventory. So if Deutsche Bahn has an outage, it's still problematic for the app themselves because how are you now having visibility into the inventory and what people can book? And then that, that cascades downstream. So if, if there's a type of team where the daily incoming problems 
are what shapes up how that team works, uh, then that should also be taken into account. Is then someone in product ops organizing these and researching to the team? Do you need a dedicated team that you just name operational excellence yeah. or something like that? And their whole thing is um, put out the fires and then build up um, patterns and processes around potentially not having repeatable fires, but you're still going to have new fires from new markets, new integrations, uh, new, 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 new use cases yeah. potentially. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, in practice, that's what, what I've seen teams uh, set up to shield a bit against, um, both shield against noise, but also be able to jump on opportunistic things or, you know, in, in a B2B context have kind of a, a, what they call solution engineering team that can assist mm -hmm. with these one-off requests, right, of, of clients, on board, handle onboardings and so on. That makes a lot of sense. I do want to circle back um, to the point that you made around um, seniority and seniority being kind of a, an enabler of shape up or, or also a prerequisite in, of sorts. Um, and I, I wonder how, how you've seen that play out in, or what the spectrum is that you see in people being accepting of ambiguity in the work that they handle versus seeing that as a something to minimize let's let's put it like that understood so you you've already touched upon a very important part of what makes someone senior you can give them a mess and they sort it out right the ambiguity level expands the more senior a person is uh, so by comparison if you throw a junior person in something that's not super well organized where they get like the next task well scoped they'll be like oh this is such a mess Oh, 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 you know, whereas yeah. a senior person would be like that meme where there was this woman crying on a beach where there was a, a wrecked, um, I'm not sure if it was a plane or something else, and there was someone else sunbathing and being super <laughs> relaxed. So the, the senior person would be around all this chaos and it's like, oh, I've seen this before. There are some things that are fixable. There are some things that will probably need to figure out how we change processes or systems, uh, but we'll, we'll get rid. Whereas the junior person will start being overwhelmed and confused, um, potentially even just try to throw hours at this, but not that successfully. Another part of um, seniority would also be the taking initiative and ownership. Uh, I, I'm going to take years out of this because we had people that weren't successful through our recruiting process with a lot of years of the resume or weren't that successful in the fit product people is looking at where the years didn't matter it was more of taking initiative being extremely fast with some types of decisions understanding what to ignore um, what to underperform at even if i'm using this you, you know how in gamers min max their characters where you get like level two at something that you're not planning to use but you go level 10 at a few things that i feel it's it's a senior person so not not only the ambiguity of the scope but just figuring out where hey this is super serious going to give it my 90 or 100 and hey I don't have capacity for this i'm just going to let it slide and give it to a more junior person or just tell people this is not getting take, taken into account and monitor if it flares up, if at all. So there are, there are all of these bets that someone very senior needs to do on a daily basis on all the incoming topics. And, and that differentiates them in this type of environment. 
Cool. I love it. That's a great framework to think about seniority. So what you've taught me is kind of uh, being comfortable with increasing level of ambiguity, um, taking ownership, and then the ability to min-max uh, certain things, as you put it, right? Yes, because you can't take ownership of everything someone throws at you, right? Whereas a junior person would be like, I need to do everything. Whereas a senior would be like, what is this? Is this even in our focus for the next three to six months? Can we park it? This seems to be conflicting with this other thing. This person doesn't seem to be really knowing what you're talking about or they're a bit confused. Let me ask more uh, for more clarification. You know, then they will be like chop, 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 chop of everything that comes in and yeah. have a strong mental model or where all of these incoming pieces fit in and how, how they should be deal with, dealt with and when. What are some of the elements or principles that you see are driving the ability to ship versus hindering the ability to ship? Mm -hmm. That's a complex question because it also depends on the size of the company. When you are large enough and you're risking alienating a large user base or having regulatory um, issues, it, it can take uh, six months to ship a checkbox at one of the large FANG companies because that checkbox has a bit of regulatory drawbacks and may end up in a TechCrunch article or in some large PR topic. So that, that can hinder when you're operating at this scale. If you're very early on, you can take a lot of risks uh, in some cases, but that, that also differs if it's regulated medtech, you probably can't. If, uh, so, so that's more of, okay, what's the business model? What are the risks of mistakes? And what kind of these mistakes that can happen when you move fast? Are they um, a revolving door type of mistake? You know, you oops it and you um, roll it back or it's a one-way type of um, decision, which is going to cost you a lot depending on opportunities, financially, in time, if you need to to turn back from that one. Uh, but I, I would feel that the business model also hardens a lot the, the way you can work and what you can do, even sometimes the area of a company. So like not even if, if a company is large enough, it's going to have a consumer-facing area. It can be B2B, B2C, we could say user-facing. If Let's say, let's take a B2C product like Uber, which is actually not B2C because it's marketplace, right? So there's a driver facing up, there's driver tooling. Um, the consumers have an app. The consumers have also a web portal where they can do various things. Businesses also have a portal where they could monitor like how their employees are spending taxi rides and putting a few rules like not allowing taxi rides at 12 at night, but only <laughs> to, during business hours. So, so things like that at the business hours during the day, of course. And, and then the type of PM and the type of, let's say, shipping cadences and flexibility then will vary because these are all now separate product lines. And if you're dealing with invoices or people's money, you probably don't want to have too many mistakes there on how you've calculated an invoice as this breaches trust. And it's, it's a powerful breach of trust. If you're in an area where fault tolerance is higher, then why not ship faster and, and have a fast learning curve? Uh, I know it's a very big answer for, hey, how does this work? And I, I like also the companies where the dev teams can set up their own microwave of working. 
and, and that have like a larger um, and flexible way of prioritizing how do we all pull together in the strategic direction of the product while letting individual teams have some flexibility of how they arrange their work. Basically, it, it revolved a lot around risk, right? Um, how risky is it to be wrong with what you what you ship? Yeah, versus um, how risky is it to be slow and lose uh, the opportunity, right? As there's there's this concept in investing. I've heard, I think I've heard it um, from Mark Andreessen on Exiting Z podcast. There are mistakes of commission and mistakes of omission. So mistake mm -hmm. of commission, you you break something, you you make a sort of um, it's it's a very visible error. M yeah. Mistakes of omission is that this could have been a 10x type of decision or a play, but you didn't do it or you did it too late. And this is where the most money potentially is lost. Whereas with the mistakes of commission, you can lose a cap amount, but you can make the mistake of omission of not building this capability that will then drive a lot of traction or, or bring the, the best return from everything else you've tried out in in your area of the product and uh i think that's what also gets the most attention then in in all the discussions around um building software this uh uh kind of errors of of omission right well, at least in my what i'm observing is a lot of people talking about being too slow um is is that does that map to the work that you you tend to do, or is your work more happening in the sphere of risk of uh, commission? It, it depends on the client profiles and also which area of the client we're we're solving. Because in even at B two C clients like FreeNow, we've done invoicing for drivers, right? Where that's B two B play, uh, you're touching people's money, and when you touch money, you touch the heart of people if there's a mistake so, uh, or also if the payouts aren't fast enough, if the payouts aren't correct, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of legal compliance and, and there you can take your time to make a decision as a PM. If, if it's something um, B2C facing at a series A startup that just trying to grow and trying to do all the hacky things to grow, then, then being slow, it's a mistake that, um, we would also consider problematic from the way our interim PM would behave. That that that's I would say like a very different way of of working and prioritizing and being a bit more YOLO about it <laughs> yeah. than the other part where hey this is going to break the trust of our suppliers and we can't mess with that. We would rather just take a bit more time to think about it. Um, part of the slowness, also some companies are right. It's teams not being set up correctly, sometimes not being motivated or not understanding what they do. And sometimes also being a bit more junior uh, or not being entrepreneurial in their way of thinking. And rightfully so, because we also all come have come down from a very heated market in the investment space, right? And we came from... 2020 to 2021, where anyone in a, with a pulse that somehow work in tech will find a job at a well-funded company somewhere, we, we were just drowning in the amount of things that they would do, to, hey, we all ran out of money, out of money, BC, pipeline dried up. Now we need to look at the quality of people, the work that they do, and at our costs. Lo and behold, 
now you're starting to think like an agency like us because yeah. we never had external investments we always eat what we kill and we need to be attentive of uh, our costs uh, our work and how uh, is the long-term fit of our people that we have here um how much can we hire versus like what the business outlook looks like and so on so it was an interesting um sh also shift from growth at all costs and just let's throw more people at everything into are these people doing the right thing are they the right people and and so on and i i feel that there has been a welcomed pressure also for engineering to not just throw their hands up and say oh the ticket is not scoped or the pm didn't give me enough info or i'm blocked into things they could do to unblock themselves uh, or get more ownership in that area and, and i'm very happy for this type of change because i feel engineering should also be excited about what they're building and be invested in it and if they're not maybe they should look for something else to do because they're definitely not spending their work waking hours productively and work takes up most of our waking hours which is then a loss of potential for for those people them for themselves yeah for sure and actually that uh, that translates to what i've observed in in other teams is that engineering is uh, now asked to collaborate more on actually how do we solve this problem um and maybe even sometimes upstream like what's the problem to, to solve i um we're coming up on time here but i want to mm -hmm. ask um how do you you mentioned this in the very beginning, kind of reading the room when you're working with a client is really important. How do you um, how do you work with the clients that you work with in understanding what type of you know risk profile do they have? What type of decision speed are they looking for in the, in the PMs that you are bringing on board? Um, is that something tested that you feel out, or do you have like a very explicit you know what do you need from us template? Of course, the what do you need from us template helps. Uh, we also ask, um, so maybe to step back on how we work, the person bringing us in or responsible for us in a certain business unit, because as large customers, we could have different people and they act as a different company altogether. That's what we call the champion. So that, that person then takes a risk bringing us in, in a traditional employment setup, that would be kind of our boss. Um, and I have a talk about onboarding on like what, what we do and what we ask for. So we can also share it with this podcast to not repeat myself, yeah. but that would be a person that we trust initially to give us the correct information. Of course, the person could be also an unreliable narrator and we try to figure out on that as, as we go along. The other part is understanding from what they what they say versus what they do or how things look. And you've traveled to other countries, right? So you've seen that even the subway signs change or the roads look different or, or the, the taxis are not yellow, they're like white color or it's, it's like something like that. Or for example, in South Korea, a free taxi would have a, right, a red light on and a, and a green light meant that they're occupied. So their red is seen as a go, green is seen as a no-go type, type of signal visually, which made also the stock trading apps confusing for a European, which is like green is going up uh, and, and red is going down. And I feel that this is a good parallel with how companies are set up. There's of course um, a lot of the, the age of this company, their business model and their size, 
sometimes there's a bit of a location flavor, but in the more international ones, we've seen that it stops mattering after a while. And our ideal customer profiles are also companies that have at least the ambition to become European-wide or global companies, because in this day and age, you need to have a, a focus that extends beyond one market. I, I hope that gives a generic but useful answer. Let, let me know if, if you need more. So one part that we do, and it's an unfair advantage for product people compared to, let's say, independent contractors that will go in at a client, is we don't send our PM alone. So the client may interview someone and may have that person as their main contact person. Um, that person comes assisted by an associate PM for tactical support. And both of them are managed and mentored by a director of product or a VP of product, which means that we will request accounts for three people. So we need to, we also have a document explaining our ways of working and how that is beneficial, including let's say one of these people gets sick uh, or takes a longer vacation. And that sickness coincides uh, um, is at the same time with your quarterly planning, which would be very unfavorable. Yeah. But, but it happens. Life tends to happen with, once in a while we'd get a signal that someone is in the hospital and it's very unfortunate for the person we send flowers but we have then the rest parts of the trios to cover up for that specific uh, unpreventable externality so that's one way due to the experience of the director and the vps of product and from our people seeing different places they can start understanding okay this kind of mm -hmm. looks like an x they seem to not like this certain thing. They seem to back channel more on these specific topics. Um, yeah. there, there's also been a case for where the people at the client don't like questions. It's, it's, it's perceived as questions being aggressive. So whenever you are not sure about something, you can't bring this up in a larger meeting. You need to back channel with the people involved in that meeting. And then after you have some agreement, bring it up. Whereas we're used that product people with a more direct culture, you kind of ask what, what's on your mind. Others are not. So there's, so there's mm -hmm. like small differences that can make you successful or very unsuccessful somewhere. We rely on the experience of our people and the trio to, to learn. And that has also been very helpful for our client facing PM because if they observe something, they can ask the buddy or the, um, the buddy backup, which would be the associate or their mentor, the director of your products. Like, hey, this, these people at the client are doing this and that. What's your opinion? And since yeah. they would have access to our conversations, the Slack channels and regular accounts at the clients, they could also see the raw materials or discussions themselves and not be um, a very diluted opinion that comes across lots of channels. We also conduct uh, quality of service calls with basically having um, a very senior person in our organization, usually the one monitoring the engagement, talk separately with each important stakeholder and getting that feedback as well. Because sometimes you notice in some cultures, people don't like to give direct feedback with our, to our people of something they should improve, but they would do that in a separate call with someone from our side. So all of these things we bring together and make it more successful for our people to operate somewhere and also more stressful for them than being sentenced as an independent. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, thank you so much for sharing so much about this industry that I knew absolutely zero about uh, and, and the ways that you work. Um, 
I do want to wrap up with one question that I unfortunately didn't send you beforehand. So I hope you know you don't mind. <laughs> <Like> to improvise. <laughs> this is also part of our work. Um, there's an interesting series of articles about how consulting sometimes compares with improv because yeah. you're just giving a prompt and and you can't be deer in headlights. You need to take that prompt and gather enough info while you're still figuring things out to be successful. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's going to be an easy one. You've dropped, you've already dropped a lot of kind of resources, articles, books, people that you're inspired by. And I, I was wondering, um, this is a personal interest of mine, uh, to be completely transparent, but what books or articles have you seen that are, I would say, tangential to the field of product management or product development, but inspire inspired you do you know what i mean uh, is there maybe something and, that and comes to is, mind i think the 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 best product books are not product books mm -hmm. like after you go you go past the basics yeah uh, the the next way you can improve yourself as a, as a pm would actually be not reading pm books because they, they all somehow are from the perspective of someone who did product at some point and are not from a founder or MD or or uh, other options that are the most powerful stakeholders in an organization, which you need to build up a lot of empathy and understanding for because they get you fired and they would be the ones shutting down your initiative. So for from the business book side, I really like thinking in systems from uh, oh, yes. Donatella. Donatella. Yeah. All right. So you, you've already heard, uh, heard <laughs> that. So thinking in bets from Annie Duke who won lots of poker playing uh, competitions. On the non-business side, I'm a super big fan of the culture series from Ian e M. Banks. And I would recommend the player of games to start with. So if, if you haven't read the culture, start with this book first, uh, even if it's considered to be the second in the series, because it has such a good storyline and in introducing you to uh, this super advanced society. But at the same time, it gives you an understanding of how a great system operates because this is a utopian post-scarcity society who conducts missions of goodwill in less developed societies to put them on the right track while minimizing the damage they would do. So that, so they're not against doing sometimes risky things or getting some people in danger, which is again like the bit of a black ops part of the organization called circum special circumstances that does that. But the long-term goal is put them, put these people on a path to become an advanced civilization as they are, where there's no suffering, no scarcity, and ev everything that has a conscious is treated as an independent individual. Uh, then mm -hmm. the, the third book, uh, the other part from the culture series is use of weapons. This is more intentional agent of this special circumstances unit that again goes into the specific missions. And to some degree, the PM is also a bit like this agents because they go in to a place where they don't have control over and they try to make it better to whichever means they have necessary. So I, I felt the parallels were very good. Um, also, and sometimes they break things unintentionally because they don't understand all the second order effects of whatever they're doing which also happens in the culture series as well. They, they try to do something right, but the, 
the mission somehow gets derailed and then they need to yeah. live up with the consequences of what they try to do, even if it came from the best of intentions. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I love it. Thank you for the recommendations. I actually, I read uh, Play of Games and in, in a way I feel like, it, you know, some of the the context that is given feels closer now that we are in this new AI advent um, with, you know, I think the mind... The mind's playing a bit ro a big role there. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'd have to reread. Um, thank yes, you for those. Yes, so the, for, for the listeners of the podcast, the culture has three different type of sentient entities. One of them seems to be a post-humanoid humanoid society. And then there, there are AIs that are intelligent. They're called drones and so on that have autonomy and can they can choose to not do some things you ask them to do and, and have very colorful personalities, at least the ones in, in the books I've read. And then there are super AIs called the minds. And, and then they are usually on a ship that can hold uh, the seed of a new civilization in it. So if something else happens to the other super AIs, that one alone holds enough people and enough knowledge and enough drones to just reseed the civilization themselves which makes them also very robust as a society because they are not living on one planet or a few planets that can be targeted. They're all floating around the galaxy. So, so super interesting, but again, there, there, are the, um, there are some civilizations which feel, oh, we're getting now run by AIs and we hate AIs. Let's start self-destructing or trying to... Um, prevent that so so it's it's a very interesting uh thought exercise yeah definitely so, so the next cool. one i would recommend david is use of weapons like if you okay dm me your address i can amazon it <laughs> for you <laughs> all right i'll do that thank you for offering and then on thinking in systems actually that's uh related to the number one blog post that i always recommend uh, there's a kind of a breakdown of the core ideas um, in a blog post called uh, places to intervene in a system Ooh. and it boils down this um, kind of, it, it, it's about this these places to intervene in the system that are ranked uh, from kind of easiest to tweak but lowest in impact to um, you know high impact but hard to change um, so I want to throw that into the mix thank you so much um, I'll put all of these recommendations into the show notes. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way to reach you? LinkedIn email, I mostly monitor social media, but I may not be that fast to reply depending on what's going on. Because sometimes I would get an influx of 50 messages and some, some weeks are very quiet. So depending on like which kind of week this is, and if I'm speaking at a conference or, or there's some sort of activity, I may be slower to respond to you but I will try to do that eventually. <laughs> and uh, otherwise email, or if you're interested to join product people, I would suggest applying directly because I'm involved very far down on the recruiting process as, as the team successfully runs this for a while now. Uh, on, on the sales part, I, I can be an initial contact point and then there's, there's someone else who can continue the conversation either commercially or, or for staffing people. And since you mentioned hiring, just as a last mention, is there anything particularly, any roles in particular you're looking for, or do you have a rolling uh, kind of open application process? Uh, 
we have an open application person. Some, sometimes we would hire more people at an entry level into products or what we call associate product manager. Sometimes we would hire mid-level or sometimes we would hire more senior. So currently we have at entry level, associate PM and at the senior level. And this is because we've had a few of our associates promote now to the PM level. So the mid-level part is covered very well from a staffing perspective. And now we need from the other sides. And we've had senior people promote, for example, some time ago into a director of product role. And then again, we will need to replenish this, the, the senior PM part. And, and that's how we think about it. And of course, there's sometimes attrition that happens. And then we decide if we replace the attrition or if there's someone already on the promotion path to that level to make sure we have enough people of a certain seniority uh, and not too many associates that will then not be mentored by people or not too many seniors that will then not have associates to work with on certain engagements. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. Thank you so, so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed it. Same. It was a pleasure, David, and I'm happy to find another fan of the Culture Series. See you. <laughs> See ya. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed the fascinating conversation with Mirela. If you like this show, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. And to find jobs at companies that work with ShapeUp, remember to check out our job board at shapers.builders. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great day.